Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It is time to welcome Bernard Callio to the studio for our monthly conversation about comic books and graphic novels called Drawn Out. Bernard, good morning. Richard Watts, hello, how are you? I'm excellent, mm. thank you. you. You look good. I'm slightly older. Oh, I turned 55 yesterday. Wow, that's as as a as a 54 year old. I look up to you as a as a as a as a mentor. The terrifying thing is, I I still remember <laughs> being a teenager and being in my early 20s and going, oh, that's so old. I'll, I'll never make it. I'll burn out before then. Kind of like the whole kind of go out in a blaze of glory, live young. Uh, no, what is it? Live fast, die young, leave a corpse, bloated live and it. ravaged by drug and alcohol abuse. <laughs> Well, look, you know, it, 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 you're still blazing. That's the thing. You're, you're still a, 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 a comet across the skies of, of Melbourne and the world and, and an inspiring one at oh, that. Oh, stop. <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> You've been well? I've been really very, very well. I uh, woke up on Phillip Island this morning and now I'm in Melbourne. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good life. Well, thank you for driving all the way from Phillip Island to come in and talk about comic books. Oh, look, I, it, very little could have driven me away. Um, so, and particularly because, uh, Richard, you lent me... Uh, I, I, would it be a pound? It, it, it's a lot of comic. Uh, it's, 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 it's at least a kilo I would say you get you lent me a kilo of comics, which are four issues, four compilations, four graphic novels of the Heartstopper uh, uh, comic book series by. Would we say Alice, Alice o- Oseman? Oseman is the, Alice the, Oseman? the writer and creator. She started out writing uh, young adult novels. Yes. And in her very first novel, Solitaire, mm. uh, the character has a younger brother. And that younger brother has a boyfriend. And mm. she was like, I want to explore more about that pair. Mm. Uh, and instead of writing a novel, she started a webcomic. Yes, I did uh, re- see her talking about she tried to write a novel about these two, these two characters and their relationship, but it, it, it defeated her doing it that way. She realised that she wanted to do episodic uh, um, uh, elements and, and, and anyway, she came to... Comics, a graphic narrative as the the way that their relationship could best be expressed, or she could best express it, uh, which reminds me of Sean Tan's story about making The Arrival, his silent comic book from two thousand and six, and Sean Tan mo- mostly a, a picture bookmaker and tried to do that, but he realised. Uh, that he needed to use a sequential, stepped-out version of storytelling in order to tell the the story of this uh, immigrant to a strange land. And so it reminded me, it chimed with me of this idea that comics can come up for someone who's a a prose writer or someone who's a picture bookmaker and they can come to comics as a sort of a... A solution, if you like, to to a narrative um, uh, challenge, or yeah. So, uh, and, which and re- which reinforces the, the to me the unique quality of comics as an art form. Yes, the fact that that combination of words and pictures on the page mm. or on a screen, indeed, uh, is really potent, really powerful, and still undervalued. I think. Yes, and I think sets up particular narrative rhythms. That is to say, the page, the scene, the uh, all, all of which, uh, all of th- uh, which you know have uh, parallels in film and and, and 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 books, but they exert themselves. Those beats, I suppose, those uh, arcs, those curves of story, how those those units of story fit. Uh, they fit in comics in particular ways, yeah. And so, and certainly, um, Alice has produced a lot of pages of Heartstopper, and it has become uh, recently a Netflix TV series, indeed. which uh, uh, I believe still has a one hundred percent fresh rating at Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> what uh, does fresh mean? Does well, it mean just like the? Well, it's it's kind of perky. I think you know? the name of Rotten Tomatoes, the reviewing website, kind of gives it away. It, things, films, 
TV series oh, are either fresh new. or rotten. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Uh, and so they compile reviews internationally. Uh-huh. Uh, and, yeah, the Heartstopper TV series on Netflix, which is eight half-hour episodes, very bingeable, very easy to watch. Yeah. I recommend keeping a box of tissues nearby when you no. do watch it because I cried with joy <laughs> in almost every episode. Um, and I also cried reading the graphic novels. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, very bingeable, very happy. But Rotten Tomatoes has accumulated all the reviews of the TV show internationally and pretty much every single critic has said this is a beautiful show. Uh, and it's a really faithful adaptation really? of Alice Oseman's graphic novels okay. because Alice is the producer yeah, of the yes. show and the screenwriter. Mm. Um, so let's come back to the comics. Yes. I've read these a couple of times. Yes. These are new to you. Yes, what, they are. What was your overall impression? My overall impression is that they are extremely sweet and, and, and I mean that in a very appreciative way, uh, being a bit of a sweet tooth uh, myself. But they, they are very oh, uh, loving uh, but from the narrate, from the, from the storyteller, Alice, through to these two young men who fall in love at school. Um, and, look, there's, you know, there's so much kissing in these books. It's very nice. It's just like people... Lying around kissing, or sneaking a kiss in the in the in the supermarket, or at school, or you know, it's very, it's a beautiful capture, I guess, of first love, and just these these um, Charlie and Nick, um, you know, finding their way together, finding their place together. Uh, it's a very suburban story, you know. We're in England, um, and these uh, they're sixteen and seventeen years old, respectively. Um, and they, yeah, yeah. And and she sets up, uh, bar- you know, obviously in a, in a story, you need barriers in order for those things to be overcome. So, but they're quite gentle, uh, mostly, um, and. When and we do dwell, she does dwell and um, give lots of space to the happiness. So uh, you know, uh, you know, when you say you cry with happiness, and when we, that happens in the book as well, you have these moments where these uh, two guys are just really just so happy to be together, um, and that's very heartwarming. Very, very heartwarming. Um, it, it, I really noted that, so as I say, I've got four, well, I've been lent these four, four volumes, um, which, are, you know, she's got, what, we've got a thousand pages now of, of, of Heartstopper Plus, but she initially released it on online, so be read online. Uh, t- originally a webcomic on Tumblr and also another site, Tapas. Yeah, Tapas. And it's now available for free yes. on Webtoons yeah, as which a website. Is... So, yes, you can go and buy the graphic novels if you can get your hands on them exactly. because they have been selling like crazy <laughs> yeah. as a result of the popularity of the TV series. Um, but you can read the entire thing for free on Webtoons. And one thing I would note form-wise about what that uh, online that on, online um, genesis, online beginnings uh, gives, is that these pages read very uh, vertically. So th- it's, a very, it's a rapid read because there's not much lateral. That is to say, not many panels side by side. You're continually reading down and that uh, betrays or, or, or indicates the, the source uh, delivery method of them. Um, so, yeah. It, it, yeah, unlike a, a more traditional comic design for the page where you might have, as you say, panels side by side, then you turn the page the page, and you get the full page dramatic splash, yes. for example. You keep this is a, a different visual style. Absolutely. And a fairly, to begin with, a fairly simplistic style, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. which reflects Alice Oseman's, um, not naivety, but her the fact that she is a fairly new comic book artist and then as the, the the volumes progress from volume one to volume four the drawing style becomes more complex but so does the the narrative and the emotional subject matter absolutely well. and I, I did want to that, that that for me is the uh, there's one more volume to go of Heartstopper and then she's going to she's going to she's going to finish it which I think is a, a really w- w- wise decision um, and that's still to come there's a there's a what was she saying there's a there's a Heartstopper yearbook coming out later this year which is like it's a, a, the, the, the books are black and white uh, but the book the yearbook will be um, for a color and there'll be uh, we've got a great supporting cast we've got 
very excellent um, friends. We've got also uh, yeah, sort of horrible people <laughs> at the school. Uh, we've all been to school. We all know what that means. Um, and um, uh, so they, they, they're, given, they're given quite a bit of um, – and, and look, one of the things that for me rescues this book from just going – like giving me diabetes because it's just so happy is that – Just to say – Yes, go on. To interrupt you before, yes. at that point – when you say these are sweet, the thing that strikes me is that they're sweet without being saccharine. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, there is um, uh, there are undercurrents of melancholy and sadness uh, and frustration that yes. resonate not just with me as a as a gay man, but remind me of what it's like to be a teenager uh, and the the. The, the family dynamics and yeah. all of those kind of elements that that stop it from being uh, there's something about it that I struck there's something quintessentially British about it certainly um, if it was American it would be sweet and saccharine <laughs> sure and and diabetes would be our would be our lot um, yes there's I agree with you Richard there's there's not only there's a lovely snark there's some great snark levels in this in this in this comic book but probably more Profound than that is the is the yeah that undertow undercurrent of sadness and melancholy, which you know, and props to her for this. She really develop she she brings into a real narrative uh, um, uh, counterpoint uh, in book four, where Char- Charlie, one of the lovers, um, he, 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 the, the the sadness in his you know. M- Changes into more overt mental illness um, uh, elements, and that is just um, brilliant narratively because that gives us a, a, a more. There's the more, there more. There's then more teeth to this, and and we and our stomach drops as we because we are, we now love this character um, and, and care for them as does. You know, his boyfriend, obviously, but then we are we're, we're very engaged in how that gets managed and how that you know and and yeah certainly some a great uh, presentation of those difficulties, but also some great presentation of people who care about people who are in trouble and how you can how these people how these characters help their friend their their beloved yeah so yeah pretty. There's a, yeah, a real sophistication yeah, in, I think so. in that regard. You, yes, it feels on one level like a uh, a gentle kind of uh, gay love story between two teenage boys. Um, but, yeah, those those darker undercurrents and the way that the friendship network yep. uh, is represented and engaged, the way the family network is kind of represented as well. And, yeah, Charlie's struggle with mental illness, yep. uh, which is never portrayed in a melodramatic way or a, or even um, a consciously dramatic way yes, yes. in the way it would be in a soap opera, yes. for example. Um, there's something gently realistic about yeah. it which I think um, really pushes these comics beyond just a, a simple boy meets boy, boys fall in love yeah. kind of queer comic um, to something more profound. Mm, mm. Uh, and as I say, there's some lovely ribbing in it and there's some great characters, real snark characters. So there's a girl, uh, well, there's a character, a, a female character called, called Darcy and they go to the, uh, they go to the Louvre and, uh, you know, and, and she, she, this is just one panel where she's saying, wait, that's it? That's the Mona Lisa. It's rubbish. <laughs> She's great, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, there's a there's a there's a, that that sort of tone uh, of this gang of mates uh, is is really good. It reminds me of Zot, uh, a comic book from the '90s by Scott McCloud, who went on to famously write the sort of handbook of how comics work called Understanding Comics. Uh, but Zot was a, was a story of a of a um, a friendship group at school um, at a, at a high school, uh, beautifully drawn uh, interactions between uh, high, high school kids. And the other comic that it reminded me of was Craig Thompson's Blankets, uh, which is another um, uh, telling of uh, a first love sort of story between between um, people who are at school. Yeah, so, so We've yes. We've just spent 15 minutes talking about Heartstopper. Oh, blimey, Jakes. Um, we should probably move on. Do you have some other comics I to do, chat I about absolutely today? Do, absolutely in do. The, in the, the five minutes remaining? <laughs> exactly. I, I really, really do. I do have... Uh, sometimes I'm very aware that we don't talk much about comics for kids. So we, uh, that's a 
you know, Hasshopper's all ages, but I would say particularly young adult. Yeah. But I want to talk about a comic, a brilliant comic for young readers. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, I just gave it to my niece, uh, who's ten, uh, and this is called Otto, a palindrama. Palindrama. So, of course, a, a, pa- a palindrome is a word like like my sister Anna, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Anna. Uh, Anna's name is a palindrome, A-N-A, A-N-A, from back and – it works both ways. Um, You can read it both ways. Uh, So Otto, a palindrama, is by the American kids' bookmaker, uh, John, J-O-N, Aggie, A-G-E-E. And this book, I read it and, as they they say, laughed out loud because all the dialogue is written in palindromes, all – the dialogue so it's a it's a you know 100 page book beautiful beautiful so so some of the dialogue in this go hang a salami i'm a lasagna hog that reads both ways uh, uh, <laughs> uh one when the dad gives his son some food he uh, some soup i think he says nosh son nosh son reads both ways fantastic uh, it's so so good it, it so and it's about a little boy otto Otto, obviously, you know, who refers to his dad as dad and his mum as mom. Everything's palindromic. Um, and uh, it, they go <laughs> – and at one point they go to a, a museum and I think, I've got him. He, that's, not, that's not a palindrome but it's actually museum. So he's, re, he's misspelled museum to make it – and in the museum there's a coons nook. Uh, so, you know, this is just – Mean drink for people who love wordplay uh, and um, and particularly uh, maybe introducing that sort of stuff to, to younger younger um, younger readers. It's a very beautifully cartoon book, very lovely, uh, um, like almost an animation sort of style. And uh, on the back cover of the book, uh, John Agee is praised as the droll lord of of palindromes. Of course, droll lord. Droll Lord works is a palindrome. Is a palindrome. Yeah, indeed, yeah. indeed, indeed. So that's um, a, a, a heartwarmingly uh, recommended for younger readers and for fifty-four-year-olds such as myself. Um, and well, we've got one more minute, two more minutes. Yep, great. Let's just talk. Also, talk about an interesting new moment in the sort of the, the march of the graphic novel, the comics in bookshop sort of moment, and that is. Penguin Classics, so you know those books, you know, you buy, I don't know, Dostoevsky or Dickens or whatever and they're the black, yeah, the black spine and black, mostly black on the front cover. Well, Marvel Comics have gone into business with, or into bed or whatever it is with Penguin Classics and so now you can get a Spider-Man collection, a Black Panther collection and a Captain America collection all in Penguin Classics. So they're larger format because they've done that to um, you know, fit the, the larger pages. Fantastic. But you've got this sort of imprimatur, uh, this sort of uh, praise by the great literary uh, publisher or pub- representative, Penguin Classics, of these books which they are saying, yeah, these cons- constitute part of the, 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 the tradition. You know, these these are literally being canonised uh, in this, and they have forewords by, uh, say, Black Panther has a foreword by Nnedi Okorafor, who's a novelist, uh, and she has also written some Black Panther and some Wakanda uh, Forever, which is th- these are these are comic books for for Marvel. Um, uh, Captain America has a, a, a foreword by Jean Luen Yan, who wrote the great graphic mo- novel for uh, younger readers, uh, American-born Chinese. Uh, so they've got so they're sort of they've got that whole foreword thing. They've got a, a scholarly afterword. So it's just a, I, I just because this show on on drawn out, we really do note. The, the fortunes of comics, I suppose, the way they are being uh, changed culturally as, as their cultural uh, cachet changes. And this is certainly one of those moments. It uh, absolutely is. Yes. The idea of saying uh, not just the publication of them to say these are part of a canon now, but the the curation yes. of the comics they have included within those individual books to say these are the landmark stories for these mm. characters over <laughs> the 
decades mm. that they have been appearing in yes. comic books. Yes. So, a very interesting moment. Very interesting moment. Uh, my, available in both hardcover and paperback, apparently. Yes, I think the I think my, for my money, the paperback looks better because it's got that black Penguin Classics thing. The, the, it the, feels like a Penguin exactly. Classic. Exactly. Although, if you're uh, slightly <laughs> obsessive uh, and putting them on the shelf next to your copy of Beowulf uh, and uh, the Iliad, yes, yeah. the size may be a challenge. It, it's a, that's the challenge. Yeah. That's the challenge with the uh, the Marvel Penguin Classics. I never, you know, you say these sort of things all the time. I reckon with comics, I never thought I'd be saying this. Uh, so it's it's. Very, very funny. Yeah. Lovely. Bernard, we should wrap up. Let's do. Uh, I will catch you in a month's time to talk about more comics and graphic novels, including a new take on the Irish legend of Cuchulain. I'm I'm looking forward to that, Richard. Okay. Uh, That's great. I shouldn't do that, should I? No, really shouldn't. (laughs) I have... Can I say I've got I've got Irish thing? Does that help? Yes, you can. Okay, I do. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Triple R. Time for us now to talk about a current exhibition showing at Buxton Contemporary until the 6th of November. The exhibition is called Still Life and it's exploring the idea that the organic world is anything but still. I'm joined in the studio by curator Jacqueline Doughty to tell us a little bit more. Jacqueline, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Talk to us about the germination, the seed that sparked this exhibition. Well, it really grew out of the need to curate an exhibition to accompany the show that's on Downstairs, which Ty spoke to you about really beautifully a couple of weeks ago, Susan Jacobs. I wanted to draw out, make a completely different show, but one that draws out some of the threads running through Susan's show. And one of the things she does is look at a form of still life called Soto Bosco, which is very different from... I think, the the standard idea of what a still life painting is. Like you imagine beautiful oil paintings of tulips and fruits and, and luxury objects like silver platters. That that was the, the sort of stereotypical 17th century still life painting. But there was another form called sottobosco, which means forest floor in Italian. And it depicted the, the dark, musky forest floor with fungi and snakes and beetles and thistles and sort of the, the, the unexalted spurned forms of nature. And um, that idea really took my fancy because that is a space of such life and such complexity. And we've all heard of that term, the wood wide web, and this notion that trees are communicating under the soil through their root systems and through the fungal mycelium that connects them all. And these amazing cooperative networks whereby they share information about pests and um, share sugar and water, they share nutrients. Um, It's an incredibly interconnected world. So such a um, contrast to this notion of still life. And so I decided I would bring together some artists who depict nature but really abstract it, make it surreal, like through, through the process of imagination, turn it into something other, but who begin as a starting point with systems of representation that are found in the natural sciences. So you think of macro photography or botanical il- illustration or field recordings or field notes, all of these systems that scientists use to represent nature and depict it and understand it. But in doing so, they isolate it. They show things in isolation. So the first work that you see when you walk up the stairs is a beautiful series of watercolours that are actual scientific botanical illustrations of mushrooms by a man called Malcolm Howie. And I wanted them to introduce the show as a kind of counterpoint to the more fantastical and surreal artworks which show nature as... um, interrelated and communicating. One of the things that immediately springs to mind is that in some ways the the scientific representation of nature through botanical illustrations or more is seeking to to quantify, to control, to document. Art does the opposite. Mm. Art encourages us to think imaginatively, to think in different ways and also tells a story about the world, about nature, about the environment in a way that science can't. Mm. 
There's a really beautiful conversation between two of the artists in the exhibition, John Walsley and Malkin Wapanda, who sadly passed away last year. But for the past 10 years, John and Malkin had this wonderful artistic relationship whereby John would visit her in the Yolnu region of northeast Arnhem Land. And they're but both passionate about the natural environment, coming from very different scientific traditions, John from the Western tradition, um, Mulkin from a First Nations empirical scientific tradition, both with a lot of knowledge about plants and animals. And um, they made a number of bodies of work in conversation with each other about the natural environment. And the works that are in this exhibition are about the giant termite mounds in northeast Arnhem Land and the way that they provide. John actually described a termite mound that he saw that had been broken so you could peer inside as a sort of apartment building. You could see all of the chambers where um, not just termites live but fungi that actually metabolise the wood for the termites. It's like this exterior digestive system for termites. Um, there's also fire ants in there, parrots, moths, all sorts of creatures coexist and collaborate within these giant termite mounds. Which is a nice segue to the work then in the exhibition by Nicholas Mangan, mm. um, which is from his termite ecology series. Yes, and he's been working on that for a long time. He's moved on to coral now, which is another symbiotic organism, but um, worked with termites for a long time. And for him, the interest grew out of the way that termites communicate, and there are a number of artworks in this exhibition about plant and animal communication. Um, it's a term called stigmergy. I think that's the right way to pronounce it. It's a form of chemical communication, so they leave chemical signals for each other. And he read a report about the way a group of entomologists were trying to utilise that form of communication to find rare earth minerals. So typical to try and monetize a, a fantastic form of, of animal behaviour. It was unsuccessful, didn't work, but that just sparked his curiosity and he started looking more deeply into the incredible systems of um, termite behaviour. And so the form that is in the exhibition, it almost from a distance looks like, um, like an, a car engine that's been worked on by a mechanic. But as you move closer, it starts to look more like a cross-section of a mine. And he's definitely referring both to the interior of termite mounds, but also mines, and is thinking both about the human impact on the environment, as well as the, the way that animals and plants work in a far more um, synergistic relationship. I've been a fan of Nick's work for years, having been introduced at to him and his practice at a Next Wave festival mm. many, many years ago now. And the idea of kind of sculptural works that reference and draw upon the natural world and in this instance, you know, the, the fact that you might see part of a termite mound, it's like a, an iceberg perhaps. You, yeah. you see an object but then underneath it and spreading out into the earth are these rich, complex passageways and tunnels and mm. mines. And, yeah, they have and, ventilation shafts. Yeah, and it's the fact amazing. that Nick is recreating that and kind of referencing that in his sculptural practice kind of in these works is quite fascinating. Mm. And there's a nice analogy in the process by which he makes them because he uses 3D printing, which is a process of accretion, layers slowly being built up and up until the form is created. And that's the same way that actual termites are created. They're made out of spit and dirt, essentially. So some of these giant termite mounds are very, very tall, much taller than human beings. They take hundreds of years to form, but they've been formed slowly and gradually, layer after layer. Now, one of the other artists in the Still Life exhibition, uh, who's also been a guest on this show a few times, uh, Vera Muller, mm. um, who the last time we, she and I spoke were talking about her interest in, um, I think, Western Port Bay and the life under the surface and vegetable life and so forth. Here uh, for Still Life, she's turned her focus to the forest floor, to fungi, Yes. And she is actually a trained scientist. She studied in Germany before she moved to Australia. Um, her specialty was freshwater ecology. And she also studied my mycology a bit, which is the scientific term for mushrooms, fungi. Um, so this is a lesser known body of work by her. She is mo more known for work about coral and underwater life. But she made this work about 10 years ago during a residency in England. Um, 
in a council space that was near a beautiful forest called King's Wood. And she was fascinated by this old growth forest that was very biodiverse, but also very attuned to conversations and concerns at the time in the local community about the surrounding fields of genetically modified canola and the fear that the, the seeds from these GM modified plants would blow into this protected, beautiful forest. So she often works with the idea of hybridity and um, forms that are half natural, half um, sort of artificial. And so she made this whimsical series of little sculpted fungi. They almost look real, but as you get closer, you think, no, that's not quite right. They're tiny and we have the actual sculptures in the space and we've kind of playfully arranged them on shelves around a column as if they're in the way that fungi can grow on tree trunks. But then they're juxtaposed with the photographs she made when she was in England. So she actually took these sculptures, placed them on the forest floor and then shot them with a macro lens in the way that a scientist would on a field trip. So they, they almost look real in that environment, but crazy colours and crazy shapes. And a lovely blurring of the, the boundary between the real and the imagined, the natural and the artificial. Mm, mm, yeah. And that conversation sort of extends across the entire show. Now, we've talked about sculpture, we've talked about photography. Talk to us about some of the other kind of artists and art forms involved in the work. There's a, uh, for example, if people catch the elevator, there's mm. a sound work they can experience. Yeah, I wanted a real variety of works and I wanted them all to bump up against each other and to bleed because the, the main idea behind the show is of entangled life. I wanted the artworks to be entangled too. So there's a couple of sound elements that bleed through the show. And the one you're referring to is a work by Michaela Dwyer. Um, it's called Ode to the O and it's a sound work that's in collaboration with a sound artist called James Hayes and they work together to alter an actual field recording made by a zoologist of a bird that used to be endemic in the Hawaiian Islands. It's a type of honey eater called the O and the last known recording of it was made in 1985 and the last sighting of it was 1987. Since that time the assumption is that it is extinct. Um, it hasn't been observed since then. So she has taken that scientific recording and she's turned it into something mystical and kind of haunting. It sounds like the bird is haunting us from the beyond beyond. But she has also interspersed it not only with other bird calls, but also with the sound of Big Bird from Sesame Street. So a little bit of humour there. There is there is a lot of playfulness and humour in this show. It's a really evocative work and a lovely entrance to the exhibition if you enter it from the lift. Are you noticing that people are wanting to linger in the lift to experience the work kind of beyond just the get into an elevator, go up, step out again? Definitely. And we have a seat there for those who do. It's nice that it's a stainless steel lift, so it makes it very echoey, which at first we thought would make the sound bad, but it's actually enhanced it. So it, it's this thing, it really surrounds you. It's a beautiful space to listen to it in. If we're talking about sound in art, uh, one of the artists in Still Life, I, I think I tend to associate with sound, even though her practice is, is more video. Mm. Uh, Angela Masiti, who I spoke to several years ago after um, winning a, uh, a commission at ACME for the work The Calling, mm. which was about Beautiful whistling work. and the way that people use whistles to communicate uh, mm. for, across mountaintops and so forth. But for Still Life, Angela has created a, a video work, again, using macro photography. Uh, talk to us uh, about kind of her work in Still Life. Yeah, so as you've indicated, she's very well known for work that is that looks at different forms of human communication, whether it's whistling languages, whether it's song, whether it's um, instrumental music. This work is a bit of a departure for her because it is about communication in the plant world. And so the the visuals you see, it's the um, it's been presented as five videos that are on monitors that are vertically hung on poles. So it almost looks like a forest of monitors, like you're walking through the trees. And the imagery is flowers shot very close up in a macro lens, lit with ultraviolet light. So they're beautiful, otherworldly, kind of hallucinatory. And they're slowly being decayed and eaten by fungi. So you can see strands of mycelial threads and little mushrooms spurting out of them. And these really trippy, beautiful colours, like violets and blues and aquas. But the soundtrack 
Um, there's 10 speakers. Each speaker is a different human voice. They're all singing the same note. It's an A, which is apparently a particular frequency. And research shows that trees do communicate through electrical signals at this particular frequency. So these human voices are imitating it and singing it in this beautiful humming drone. So these 10 voices merge and they, they spill across the whole space. The whole exhibition is infused with this, the sound of this kind of meditative hum. It's very beautiful. Jacqueline, in terms of, the, the, I guess, the segue from Angela Masiti's work to Claire Millage's work and what you were just talking about, the sound throughout the gallery and so forth, the fact that Claire is exploring the way that um, landscapes and environments are alive and uh, alive beyond just the there is a tree growing there mm -hmm. and a shrub growing there and an insect over there, but alive in a way that suggests a community and also communion. Yes, and she really brings the human element into that because she is the child of two ecologists. Her father is a zoologist and her mother is... Um, She's a botanist. And so Claire has been dragged on their field trips all her life and it has really impacted her practice and informed it. So a lot of her works are about the natural environment and she's lately done a series of works about a particular forest near where her parents live and work um, called the Nightcap Forest in northern New South Wales. There's a particular sort of tree there. It's called the Nightcap Oak, which is a recent discovery, and they think it has a lineage of like 120 million years. It's amazing, this extraordinary tree that only grows in this forest. So this work is about that tree and um, about the way that trees are living entities and that they have messages to teach us and that ecologists are primed to receive those messages and transmit them to us. So her work draws on her parents' field notes. So it's made up of a little sculpture of tree bark, like a little teepee of um, shards of a tree and some stained glass panels. And she's written her parents' field notes on the stained glass panels. And it's a lovely mix of scientific terminology and also more informal notes that wouldn't make it into the scientific papers. But she feels like that's where the truth lies these notes and the margins that, that um, don't make it into the, the publications. Jacqueline, is there a hope that after people experience still life at Buxton Contemporary that they will leave thinking and seeing and perceiving the natural world in a different way? I hope so, yeah. And also the message that underlies, like this isn't a straightforward ecologically ecological show, but definitely that message runs under all of these practices that the world would be in a much better state if human beings understood how interconnected we are with everything around us and if we learnt from those mutualistic symbiotic ways of being. For more information about Still Life at Buxton Contemporary, which is on until the 6th of November and entry is free, jump online, buxtoncontemporary.com. Buxton Contemporary located on the corner of Dodd Street and Southbank Boulevard in Southbank, just around the corner from the NGV and just over the road from the MTC's Southbank Theatre. Entry, as I said, is free and it's open Wednesdays to Sundays, 11am till 5pm and you can catch Still Life until the 6th of November. And Jacqueline, there's an accompanying exhibition as well. Yes, called Susan Jacobs. Yep, so as do check that out yep. as well. Uh, so, as I said, buxtoncontemporary.com for details. Jacqueline, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Let's talk more about television, about streaming, about films and the stories that we tell. I'm joined on the line by Sandy George, who for many years has worked as a journalist and correspondent and editor uh, covering the, uh, the, the film industry, so uh, writing for The Australian, writing for Screen Daily and so much more. Sandy has written a new platform paper published by Currency House, platform paper number three uh, in the new platform paper series, Nobody Talks About Australianness on Our Screens. Sandy, thanks for joining us. What do we mean by Australianness in this context? <laughs> 
Yes, it's funny, that word, which you don't see often, has been triggering for quite a number of people. I think some people have thought I've wanted to hark back to the good old days of Priscilla or Muriel's wedding, etc. But all I really mean by Australianness is that we see something and recognise it as our own. You know, generally, given the emotional underpinning of film and TV, it's about character, but it also might be about place or accent or attitude or history or whatever. But to me, Australianness is that we can recognise it on screen. Now, that may seem a little obvious, but we've got a funding system where on-screen Australianness does not necessarily... Um, well, it's not insisted upon by government or funding agencies in order to get taxpayer funding uh, funding. So that's why I felt compelled to bring it up. Now, there's a lot of discussion in the screen sector, particularly around TV, for example, uh, both free-to-air and streaming, about rules and guidelines for Australian content. We also hear a lot, particularly uh, announcements being trumpeted by federal politicians and state politicians as well, saying, oh, this production coming to film in Melbourne or on the Gold Coast will bring X amount of dollars into the economy. And they talk about the value of employing Australian uh, kind of uh, technicians and camera people and sound designers and so forth. But often the shows that are being talked about the most are then they might be filmed in Australia, but they're not Australian films or stories, are they? They're not at all. Look, I've reported on the industry for a very long time and there's certain questions that have you know, shadowed Australian film and TV drama forever. You know, it's expensive making drama and um, our population is small, other formats can be made for cheaper, like reality, so how can it be paid for? You know, is enough made given how much foreign drama is available? How can it compete on the budget? And I think all those concerns and challenges have been exacerbated by the environment. Streamers coming in and starting to take control of what's made. The globalisation means a lot of companies aren't, you know, they're Australian branches of big global enterprises, things that have never been addressed like um, the blockages between Australian films in cinemas, etc., and I think what, you're, what you've just mentioned about, yes, foreign versus Australian production, often that is discussed and there's this us and them feeling about that. But you do need big productions to support, for instance, the post-production sector. It's immensely expensive to make sure your equipment is up to date and, and all of that. And yes, those big productions are really important for skills building and for, you know, employment and so on. But I would, I would personally prefer all those big productions at, that fill our studios to be as big Australian productions. And I think perhaps there is an opportunity for that. I mean, think about Baz Luhrmann's work or George Miller's work or indeed Clipbait, which Tony Ayres drove, which was recently made in Australia. But I think we have to be very clear about which of our incentives and which pots of taxpayer funding are for the economic and which are for cultural production. And the way funding works is there's two key pots for Australian. There's tax rebates, which you get after something's finished, and there's direct discretionary funding, which is through Screen Australia and also through the state agencies. And one of the things that I really push is for Screen Australia to be um, very cognizant of cultural value, though it is hard to put your finger on. When I talk about Australianness, what I'm insisting on is that it has to be in place for there to be any potential for cultural value, but you don't get cultural value just from Australianness. Something has to be brilliant, something has to appeal, something has to sort of get us in the heart, you know? 
do Australians want to see Australian stories? We regularly hear and see uh, kind of media coverage saying that Australian films tend to do terribly at the box office. They open for a week or two and vanish without a trace, uh, whereas the big American blockbusters, which admittedly have millions and millions and millions of dollars behind their marketing and advertising, uh, attract crowds in huge numbers. Conversely, on television, as you say in your your platform paper, um, shows that feature Australian stories and Australian scenes and settings and and Australian uh, tones, if you will, uh, do very, very well. So do audiences want Australianness in the the film and television they consume? I have no doubt that they do. I, I agree that there's a narrative about our production not sort of appealing, but I don't know. I think very a very narrow interpretation of what's happening. I think that in cinemas, for instance, nobody goes to things in part because there's no clear way of knowing what's on because marketing budgets are so small compared to... I mean, not on big films like, I mean, Elvis is an Australian film or The Dry or, you know, distributors and exhibitors, if they've got a great film, um, they really pull all stops out. But there still is a limit to how much money is available to get those films out there. Um, And, you know, the other thing is that we only see the best from around the world, whereas the system here means that everything that's made is seen, like it's part of, it has to happen in order to get the tax rebates, for instance. But I don't know if that's such a great thing, seeing the bad and the good, or maybe we can um, show it in a way where the context is different. You know, one of the things I'm looking at is perhaps for smaller films that perhaps don't work as well as um, the filmmakers would have wanted or have a narrow audience, perhaps they can be toured around Australia in a sort of film festival. We have French film festivals and Spanish film festivals, but we don't actually have Australian film festivals. And the other thing is, um, Richard, that when you look at how films, Australian films, do in the major city festivals, it is such a contrast to how they do in cinemas. And to me, that's telling us that there has to be audience development, taste development. And I think the festivals have done that very well. Um, You know, people are really curious about Australian cinema in that context, but not so curious in the cinema context. And I think that's one of the things that also needs to be looked at somewhat. Um, I would imagine that you would also, Sandy, be very keen to get more Australian content uh, and, again, content that reflects Australia rather than just is made in Australia on streaming yeah. services because uh, uh, the, the percentage of content on those streaming services is very low. Tiny. It's tiny. Before the um, Liberal Coalition lost power on 21 May, they had put a proposal that um, the streamers be regulated for a certain amount of new Australian content. But generally, um, the industry doesn't think that what, were they, that what they were proposing was good enough. And also, they relaxed the um, content regulations on the free-to-air networks. So, yeah, the big hope is that the new government will take our culture much more seriously and certainly them saying that they're going to make a cultural policy or, or create a cultural policy and they've started consultations about that is a very, very good sign. I mean, the other thing about drama going on to streamers and they are commissioning a lot um, and the free-to-airs are commissioning less is that it's hard to find in that mass of, you know, um, the, the huge menu that they've got online and not only that, 
you'd have to have a lot of subscriptions to see all the drama that your taxpayer dollar is is paying for, and that's that's also a bit of a problem. Um, yeah, it's it's a very much a wait and see on the streamers. The other thing I'm very conscious about was the free to airs commissioned Australian drama, with the idea that the key thing was to was to please their Australian audiences. Whereas, you know, whatever the streamers say, yes, they certainly want it to pop in Australia and drive subscriptions. But, you know, there's no way they also don't want it to pop internationally. And will that mean a sort of watering down of Australianness, or will it mean, you know, the, the sort of Australianness is emphasised somehow? All that is going to be so fascinating to watch. Sandy, in terms of writing this, it feels in tone a much more personal piece from you than a, a more traditional piece of journalism. Yes, uh, and it took a bit to get it out of me, let me tell you. Just because I have an a bit of an old-fashioned journalism that you keep yourself out of things. But I am very concerned about what's happening, the kind of globalisation and how that's going to impact um, this industry. And I, I, I could not overemphasise how much, you know, Australian film and TV has has really thrilled me through my life and sustained me and taught me things. Often I feel as though I only know about Indigenous Australia deeply because of Australian film and TV, for instance. You know, I think there's only limited um, opportunity for very diverse content and I'd like to see much more... Um, content that you know reflects the true nature of the population and so yeah it is very it is very personal which has gone against the grain somewhat um i've had a chance to have a fair bit of feedback about it now because i'm revising it before it goes into a book later in the year also published by currency house and it has definitely struck a chord particularly because you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have a change of government. It feels like there is an appetite for change. I think with any system, there needs a sort of refreshing, a relook at where the policy is creating the outcomes we want and so on. Yeah, I just... I, and also I feel a little bit like the public's been forgotten and I would, I would really like to try and build the links between industry and public more. So, yes, I guess I took my journalism hat off and I put my I want to see more and better great Australian film and TV for me but also for all those people around me, friends and family who aren't in the industry, yes. Yeah. The... I think there's a nice analogy there between you struggling to find the right voice for this platform paper, nobody talks about Australianness on our screens, and the struggle of the industry to represent our voice, the Australian voice, on screen as well. Yes. Nobody Talks About Australianness on Our Screens by Sandy George, uh, the new platform paper's number three in the series, available as a free PDF from currencyhouse.org.au and, as Sandy has said, it will be published in book form with the other platform papers uh, published this year uh, in a book at the end of the year. So currencyhouse.org.au to download Nobody Talks About Australianness on Our Screens. Sandy, thank you for joining us on the program and thank you indeed for your contribution to the national discussion. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 